I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. We're continuing on with our industry series and diving in within the financial services industry a little bit more specifically into asset management. I'm very proud to have with me here today Sophie Boulanger, the head of the transfer pricing department and partner at KPMG Luxembourg. Hi, Brittany. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. And we also have Karen Taylor, a managing director in transfer pricing within the financial services industry in New York. Welcome. Hello. So happy to be here. So we'll get started with what what is asset management and then a little bit about what it is not. Mm -hmm. Asset management sounds a bit mysterious and appealing. Asset managers, what do they do concretely? They will invest funds of people into different products according to a certain investment strategy. They will run on the day-to-day a portfolio of assets. People who will render the service of defining an investment strategy for a client, of proposing certain investment options, of investing on behalf of their clients and hopefully maximizing the return that they can get depending on the different investment strategy. If you look at the entire value chain and you have people who will manufacture products or design products into which the clients can invest, you will have distributors of those products. So people who will help sell the products to clients and around that, the asset managers who will advise, who will manage the portfolio of assets with a number of different activities depending on on what we are speaking of in terms of investment strategy, be it in investment funds themselves, in, in structured products, well, whatever type of assets we are speaking of. So it's a service industry, but where, which in a way bases itself on the production, on the manufacturing in a way of financial products. <laughs> it helps visualize it. When we're thinking about asset management, we're thinking about wealth creation for some of those alternative mm-hmm. style of investments through funds, style of investments outside of the banking sphere. We clearly separate the asset management sector from the banking sector, but still to be understood that asset managers are usually the investment arm of banks, very large banks, will have an asset management division. And from a transfer pricing perspective, we will completely split the two. Practically, how does asset management work? What are the activities being performed? If we think of the value chain of an asset manager, the way I think about it is you start with the quote unquote sales function of an asset manager, which they would often describe as capital raising. So you've got a fund, you've set up a fund, you need to find investment. That's step one. Step two will then be saying, okay, great, we found the investment. We found all these people who are willing to give us a bunch of money as an asset manager. We then have to decide what to do with it. Step two. So at that point, we're thinking about investment strategy. We're thinking about the structure. If we're using a fund, what is the fund going to spend all this money on? Step three would be divestment, thinking about the fact that we've made these investments, we've acquired whatever products or assets or structures we're going to put all these funds into. We then need to exit. So there's a whole bunch of approvals in that process. There's a whole bunch of important people going on within the asset manager that are very important for transfer pricing of that investment and divestment phase. And then there's the overarching umbrellas that you might think in other areas is back office. Big picture, you've got the sales function, you've got the investment function, you've got the divestment function, and then you've got the big picture back office teams as well. But with transfer pricing, we're looking at transactions amongst related parties. How does that factor in with what you described of asset management? 
When we're thinking about the intercompany relationships and transactions for an asset manager, there are two categories. You've got occasions where you've got these roles being split across jurisdiction, where you have multiple jurisdictions performing a sales function or multiple jurisdictions performing an investment decision. And when you've got that split role, you've obviously got a transfer pricing opportunity that you've got to solve for. The other situations are where you just have a support function that feeds into the fund where you've got a buyer of services and you've got a provider of services. So you can see a number of intercompany transactions where a management company will hire or outsource part of the portfolio management to the portfolio manager somewhere else in the group. Particularly in Europe, we see a lot of internal dealings rather than intercompany transactions. A company within the asset management group establishing branches in a number of countries to perform those functions. When you look at the accounts of those companies, you don't see a transaction, but still you have certain functions exercised at the level of the management company or the functions exercised within the branch. We would call it an internal dealing, but that constitutes as well a question when it comes to transfer pricing and how you allocate the profits between the head office and the branch concretely. So it seems to me that the way that these companies are structured have a huge impact on how the transfer pricing follows. And there's other factors that lead into the structures. You're exactly right. The organization will clearly influence the transfer pricing. But I think one of the interesting things about the asset management industry is you get to push and pull factors that weigh into the analyses that we do. The first factor that we'll always need to consider is the value creation model of the asset manager. You get some asset managers, for example, that are very brand focused. So if you think of yourself as a consumer of an asset manager, you're looking to different asset managers to give them your money. Now, you as a consumer have a bunch of different reasons as to why you might give asset manager A your money versus asset manager B your money. One of those reasons could be the brand. It's a reliable brand. You trust them. The other reason that you might give them your money is they do very well. They've got a track record of very high returns. So that's another reason you might give them your money. As transfer pricing specialists, you've got to weigh that into your analysis. Who owns the brand? If it's the brand that's important. If it's a track record that's important, who's generated that track record? Where does that asset lie within the group? And then we come and think about the reward. How does that get effectively compensated within the group? The other piece for asset management is the regional component of the business model. And if you've got a fund, you might have an asset manager, a European fund. You might have an America's fund. You might have an Asia-Pac fund. Often you'll have heads of those funds in different locations, running the deals locally, doing the research locally, generating the investment or the sales opportunities locally, because you've got these little mini kingdoms around the world all managing their own region. That will obviously come into the transfer pricing as well. It seems like you're discussing the value drivers of asset management. How often should we evaluate these value drivers? Kiran, you were mentioning, is it the brand that is attractive? Is it more the track record? You have all those questions around IPs and how would we reward those IPs, which are questions we are asking today much more than we were in the past. But this is not per se a change in their operating model that would drive a change in the transfer pricing policy. There's a lot around the way we do transfer pricing that impacts how we design or how we revisit those policies and then how we benchmark or test each and every year that we are still compliant with the arm's length principle. There are many considerations which evolve more because transfer pricing evolves rather than because their operating model evolves. They evolve because of regulations. And I'm sure changes in the tax world over the last few years have impacted things. 
The BEPS initiative has changed our perspective. If we think of the investment committee, for example, the investment committee is the team of people within an asset manager that ultimately sign off on an investment. Say the fund is a private equity fund, that private equity fund wants to buy a company. Often the investment committee within an asset manager will be the group of people that say, yes, we're going to buy this company. Now, the investment committee within an asset manager is often split around the world if they are a global fund. And that's because they want different insights when they make these decisions. So you have these very important people split across the world. Now, we as transfer pricing people can run into some difficult situations where you've got these investment committee important decision making people in what might otherwise be a limited risk or low margin service entity. Say you've got a back office service provider that happens to employ the head of Asia Pac for a fund. Then you have this tension within transfer pricing of saying this is the person who's generating a lot of value for the business, but they're employed in a cost plus entity. Those are the kinds of questions that we have to reconcile and say, what is the function of that entity? How should we reward it? What are the overall allocations that we need to give them? Allocation is key, right? (laughs) (laughs) The investment committee will typically look at who creates the value there really. Who are the people who are able to build and to construct this track record? They are rather the one that would get the reward. So there's no one single answer to this question. In the industry, what are other key considerations? One of the things we also always try and do in the transfer pricing space, particularly in financial services and within asset management, is align the value that we're allocating to an entity to the compensation the people in that entity are getting. How do you pay your people? How are their bonuses determined? Because that can often then lead us to say, well, if you view this person as important and worthy of a very big salary and a very big bonus, then we should probably think about them in the same way. So salaries that can be very informative for us around thinking about value creation and and how that's split within the business. (laughs) Not unlike in Jerry Maguire, show me the money. (laughs) Um, So so could you speak to the differences and nuances in the application of considerations of some of the regulatory implications in the U.S. and the European Union? In the EU, this asset management sector is heavily regulated. If we look at the trends in the last years, when it comes to regulations in the EU, there's one trend on the good governance of asset managers. Typically, you see the regulators challenging much more the asset managers or the fund managers on their level of controls when they outsource certain functions to third parties or related parties. How much oversight do they have internally to keep the final decision making and to be able to make the right decisions in favor, ultimately, of the investors? This notion of control is something that we we know very well when it comes to transfer pricing. The one who controls, the one who has the capacity to control is the one who gets the reward. There's also a lot of regulations related in general to investor protection. This is something that we see very much where the EU is trying to limit certain level of remunerations. So when you have a regulations that rules how you can remunerate a counterparty within the value chain, by definition, it has implications on the way we need to apply transfer pricing. If we think of three main regulations that in my view influence transfer pricing, everything related to ESG. There's a real transfer pricing component there that we probably don't analyze enough at the moment, which is around value drivers. And through the ESG regulation, we are obliging asset managers to change what drives value. 
But there is a moment where we will have to sit and think, do these ESG initiatives drive a certain value that we did not have recognized in the past and that we now need to recognize from a transfer pricing perspective? So those are three. Good governance, investor protection and ESG have consequences on the way we design transfer pricing policies. More generally, any regulation that obliges asset managers to revisit their operating model needs to be thought of from a transfer pricing perspective because a change in the model probably means a change in their policy or at least an update of on the U.S. side, it's very similar. Like I said, the transfer pricing concepts are not different on the U.S. side, but the regulatory environment is. It's not as stringent in the U.S. as compared to Europe. An interesting nuance on the U.S. side, though, is the is a growing awareness of the deal professionals to transfer pricing. So we're seeing a lot of these deal professionals who are not necessarily tax people within the asset manager, but they are starting to gain familiarity with the transfer pricing rules. We'll see that often, for example, in the private equity context where we're working on a deal with them and transfer pricing will then become a component of the M&A transaction. We'll look at the debt structure within that deal. We'll be involved for transfer pricing purposes to look at the diligence of the company being acquired. So there's this growing overlap in transfer pricing at the deal level as well as at the broader management company level for the asset managers. That makes sense. It's usually the last thing on a laundry list of things to consider when going through a deal. If you go from being an unrelated party to now becoming a related party, transaction structure and pricing can have huge tax implications. Any final thoughts summing up the experience of working in transfer pricing within the asset management industry? It's an evolving space that has a lot of history. So even though there is this change and there's this transition and there's the introduction of technology and ESG, there's a lot of very foundational principles that exist within the transfer pricing space for asset management. It's always a fun industry to be a part of. You never know what's coming around the corner, but you still always have this legacy view of transactions. What I find very interesting in this industry is that when you start to understand how it works and what are the main value drivers, how you will analyze from a transfer pricing perspective, it seems to be very different from anything else. You need to be a specialist and have spent years in this industry to be able to really understand and, and advise. And you both have plenty of experience in both the industry and transfer pricing to be excellent advisors. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure, Same here. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this adventure in transfer pricing. See you next time. <laughs>